here in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8, we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, John Steinbeck has a very famous book that goes by the title East of Eden. Um, I actually have never read Steinbeck's East of Eden, but I have read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, East of Eden, and have benefited enormously from understanding that, that where God leaves off at the end of Genesis 3 is sort of the gateway into the unfolding of everything else in Scripture. If you want to understand Scripture, if you want to understand everything that God has revealed progressively from Genesis to Revelation, we need to stand at the east gate of Eden, and we need to understand that what God is going to do is God is going to first place a curse on our first parents, and then the rest of redemptive history is going to be God in his infinite wisdom reversing that curse. He is setting the stage because he necessarily has to curse our first parents. And then he is showing the marvels of his grace and how he is going to reverse the very curse that our first parents and we are under by nature. Um, it's interesting, Jonathan Edwards, in that, in that sermon is reflecting on this, the long, sad account of human history after the fall. And this is what he says at one place. He says, There are many, notwithstanding the flaming sword of God's justice and vindictive wrath that turns every way, are endeavoring to find out ways to come at the tree of life. 
Many are bold to come in their own names and in their own righteousness. There is no sword for those that come in Christ's name, but a flaming sword still for them that come in their own names. You see, whether or not men and women believe what Genesis 3 teaches, every man, woman, and boy and girl is trying to get back to the tree of life, and the better part of them are doing it by their own works and their own righteousness. And it is a futile exercise. Now, what I want us to consider tonight very simply is the curse, and then the curse reversed. And I want us to look here, especially at verses 14 through 19, as we consider the curse. Now, the Lord has come, and he has confronted our first parents. This is sort of a judicial setting. When God asks questions like, where are you? Who told you you were naked? What have you done? He's not trying to learn anything. He is He is bringing a charge against Adam and Eve. He is calling them out because the inclination now of man is to hide from God. The futility of man is that he is now afraid of God instead of afraid of himself and his own sin. And so Adam and Eve are now treating God as their enemy because they have made themselves enemies of God. They have become, interestingly, exactly like the serpent who told them if they ate, they would become like God. There is irony everywhere at work in the narrative of what is happening. And so as God comes to confront them, and there's that blame shifting that occurs, and Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, notice there in verse 14 down through verse 19, God essentially now pronounces the curse on the creatures, each in the order in which they have rebelled against him. He begins with the serpent because Satan had rebelled first and foremost. He then goes to the woman because she was the first to rebel of our first parents. And then he pronounces the curse on Adam. Now, let me say this tonight. God is not a mean-spirited, vindictive being. He has to pronounce a curse because Adam and Eve have called down that curse. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when, when the Apostle Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, he is essentially saying what your sin necessarily requires is death for it. It's not that God arbitrarily decides to do these things. It is the wages of your sin. The wages of Adam and Eve's sin is death, and that's why at the end of the curse on the man, the Lord says, uh, you're going to work the ground by the sweat of your face till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, what is fascinating is that there is, at the very first pronouncement of a curse on the serpent, there is a mixture of both cursing and promise of blessing. You know this. In that first curse, and this is marvelous, you know, when we, when we read things like the Lord is gracious and merciful, when we say we believe that God is gracious and merciful, we really don't understand what we mean until we come to a place like Genesis 3.15. God doesn't have to do anything good for the creature. The Lord doesn't have to reverse anything. He doesn't have to promise that he's going to do anything good for Adam and Eve. He could have come and just wiped everybody out. But even when he comes and he pronounces that curse on, on Satan, notice this, because you have done this, cursed you are. 
And then notice verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here the Lord is saying, I am declaring war on the kingdom of darkness. I am, I am going to put the enmity between you and the woman. Now, you all know Genesis 3.15 so well. We have talked about it so many times in the past several months here. But I want to read to you tonight eight things that the Lord is promising in Genesis 3.15. Eight things that he is promising when he makes this curse on the serpent. First, he is promising that the redeemer and restorer of the race of mankind is going to be the seed of the woman. That's very clear. He is saying, I'm going to send a redeemer and that he is going to be the offspring of the woman. Secondly, he is saying that he is going to be greater than man and greater than the evil one because he's going to conquer the one that conquered man. He's going to be God. Third, he is saying that this, this redeemer is going to bring about in fallen man, in, in some subset of fallen mankind, a new nature because he's going to set people at enmity with the evil one. Right now, they're in his kingdom. They have sided with him. He is saying that he is going to give some subset of mankind as the seed of the woman a new nature to now be at enmity with the evil one himself. Fourth, he is essentially saying that he, by his divine power, is going to bring about that new nature because mankind can't help himself. Fifth, he is saying that redemption is going to involve substitutionary suffering. The seed of the woman is going to have his heel bruised. There is going to be suffering, and that suffering is going to be representative suffering to deliver those that he comes to deliver. Six, he is saying that there is going to be the gathering of the elect seed of the woman because he says the woman is going to have a seed who's going to be at enmity with the evil one. Seven, he is saying that this redemption is going to involve a constant conflict between these elect offspring of the woman that he is going to redeem and the evil one and those in his kingdom. And then eighth, this promise is saying that redemption is going to guarantee an ultimate triumph and an ultimate victory over the evil one for all those for whom the seed of the woman comes to represent and redeem. Now, that's amazing. That's amazing. That means everything else in Scripture is bound up in this promise. This is a promise of the gospel, but this is more than that. This is, this is involving everything, all the fruit of the gospel, all the application of redemption. He is promising the totality of what he is going to do through Christ, who is the seed of the woman. He is saying, everything else you read of in Scripture is me working this out. Now, that... That is clear, isn't it, when we look at Israel's conflict with the nations, when we look at things like David and Goliath, when we look at God's victories over the enemies of his church, the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites. They're all representative of Satan's kingdom in the conflict between Israel and Egypt. We see God working out this first promise in the curse on the serpent. He is, he is destroying the kingdom of darkness in the world. Um, we see it, don't we, in the conflict between the religious leaders in Israel and Christ. When Jesus calls them an offspring of vipers, he is appealing to Genesis 3.15. He is saying, 
You belong to your father, the devil. You're in his kingdom. I've come to set enmity against his kingdom. When Christ is delivering those who are possessed by demons, he is showing his power as the seed of the woman conquering the kingdom of darkness. And so on the curse on the serpent, God is already predicting that there is going to be blessing for a certain people that he is going to send the Redeemer to redeem. But then, and I want us to focus on the curse on the woman and then on the man very briefly, God very strategically places the curse on the woman and on the man respective, with respect to the creation, ordinance, and dominion mandate that he gave them. Now, you have to listen very carefully. You have to listen very carefully. There are people, I said this recently, who think that the, the work of Christians is to take dominion over everything. Here's the deal. That's what Adam was to do at creation, and he failed. And part of that dominion mandate was that, that he and Eve would be fruitful and multiply, that they would have children and they would, have, they would replicate righteous image bearers, and they would fill the earth with righteousness, and they would, as we saw, take the garden boundaries out and turn the whole world into the garden temple sanctuary where God would dwell and perfect dominion would be have over the earth. Now notice this. When God comes to place the, the curse on the woman, where does he do it? He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. The very place where the woman was to play her part in fulfilling that creation dominion mandate, to fill the earth and to subdue it, is the very place where God is going to pronounce that curse and she's going to be reminded that now through her childbearing, man will not be able to fulfill that creation dominion mandate apart from her having the seed, the Redeemer. Now this is also interesting, even here, and we'll come back to this perhaps, even here, God is taking away some of the reproach of the woman before he has even said, in pain, in pain, you will multiply in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Even before he says that to the woman, he has said, well, the woman is going to bring redemption. The woman who brought death and rebellion is going to be the one God uses to bring the Redeemer. Even there, God is lightening the shame that she would have felt. And yet here he is. He is setting that curse and pronouncing that curse in the very place where the woman should have been a partaker with her husband of fulfilling the dominion mandate. Uh, notice also that the curse is going to affect the relationship between the husband and the wife. By the way, um, you, can't, you can't do a good job of taking dominion of everything if you're fighting with your spouse all the time. Um, that's part of the curse. Now she's going to want his role. He's going to want to dominate her sinfully. I think of the 600-some interpretations of Genesis 3.16. That's probably the best one. The woman is going to try to get out of her proper role and, and step into her husband's role, and he is going to try to forcefully and sinfully bring a, a heavy hand down on her. You see, now it's not just in childbearing that the curse is manifested. It's in the relationship between the husband and the wife. And then as the Lord goes on now to pronounce the curse on Adam, 
He does so in the same way he did with the, with the woman. Remember, um, God had told Adam that he was to tend and guard the, the garden, that he was, to, he was to subdue the earth. That was what God gave him to do, was to subdue the earth. And now, notice what the Lord says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, because you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now all of your work is going to be hard. Um, you know, those who have had vocations in agrarian settings know this explicitly. Those of us who do not know it explicitly in every job, in every vocation, in everything we set to hand, our hand to do, there are thorns, there are difficulties, there are challenges. They usually come in the form of managing unfaithful people, but there are many, 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 many thorns and difficulties and trials and challenges and hardships because God has pronounced a, a curse on the place that should have brought blessing. Remember in Sunday school, if you were in here, we talked about this. Why did God curse the ground with thorns and thistles? Because man was made out of the ground. And so God curses the very place out of which man was taken. Um, every rose has its thorn, not before the fall, but after the fall. After the fall, thorns and thistles infesting the earth. Last April, I fertilized my yard, and it was beautiful for like four weeks. And the weeds just came right back, just incessantly reminding us of the fall. You know, I speculated years ago, I was in a Denny's. I don't know even who eats a Denny's. This was way, way back. And I saw a bunch of plastic plants, and I thought, isn't that interesting? It's man trying to escape the fall. Plastic plants, plastic food, plastic fake food in, the, in, the, in the, the shiny case there when you walk in. It's man trying to evade the fall, trying to get rid of the curse, and yet, and yet we can evade it. It's everywhere. We, we live life under it. Notice the Lord says that, that work is going to be difficult. Adam's not going to find it easy and enjoyable by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return and then there is the exile from eden and that is sort of the curse of curses notice uh notice verse 22 now the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take and eat of the tree of life and live forever that is just hyperbolic language Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Really, what the Lord is doing is he is making very clear to Adam and to us that you are exiled from the presence of God, that the curse of curses is that you are cut off from the life of God. That no one, no one is born into this world just, just having perfect communion with God. Every one of us are exiles out into the wilderness of this world. The story of the fall is the story of us now living our life east of Eden. And there's no way back in on our own. There's no way for us to have the possibility of life. Remember, if Adam had obeyed in the covenant of works, 
if, if when Satan came to that judgment tree, he had been dealt with as he should have by Adam guarding and protecting in, in, in God's temple sanctuary. If, if, if Adam had done that, he would have secured life for himself and all of his and Eve's posterity. And yet now there is, there is no hope of life. He is going out into the wilderness and everything is going to be futility. Everything is going to be difficult. Everything is going to be a painful reminder of what once was. Think about that. Adam lives 930-some years, and he constantly has to reflect on what he forfeited by that one act of disobedience. Um, C.S. Lewis, when he is reflecting on the nature of Eve's sin and Adam's sin, in his preface to Milton's Paradise Lost, said that, um, that they bowed low and paid obeisance to a vegetable. They chose a piece of fruit over the infinite God. And so God drove them away from that garden paradise. Now, as I noted already at the very outset, as Edwards has said, every single man, woman, boy, and girl born into this world is trying to get back through to the tree of life in their own works, in their own strength, and by their own devices. Even if they reject everything the Bible says, even if they tell you, I don't believe what the Bible says, they know they intuitively are trying to get back into the garden sanctuary. This is why, by the way, and you know this, men and women spend the better part of their time trying to create heaven on earth. Every time they try to create a perfect sanctuary, they are trying to get back into the garden in their own strength. And yet the curse is, is so so set by God that it's inescapable. No one, can, no one can reverse it in their own strength. And yet the beauty of the gospel and what we want to see now is that God is committed to reversing the curse. Now, there are intimations here as we consider the reversal of the curse. God has already given the gospel in Genesis 3.15 in the curse on the serpent. And there are intimations that Adam has believed the gospel that he has taken God at his word. And one of those intimations, notice verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Before this, um, her name was woman, Isha. Ish is man, Isha is woman because she was taken from man. Now, why would Adam rename his wife after God pronounces curses and says, the very last thing God says to man is, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death. You are going to die. God said, in the day that you eat of it, in dying you will die. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. And then God says to Adam, the curse on you is going to be you and everyone else that descended from you is going back into the very place where I took you out of. Why would Adam then turn around and call his wife's name Eve? except he understands that God is going to reverse the curse through the promise of bringing a redeemer from the woman. She is going to be the one who now, though she brought death, is going to be the conduit of life by bringing the redeemer into the world. Isn't that amazing? Adam believes the promise of Genesis 3.15. He names his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living, and I think their spiritual living is in mind. 
And then notice, no sooner has he done this act of faith that what does the Lord do for them? Notice this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, if you wanted to do a really intriguing study in redemptive history, you could look at a whole biblical theology of clothing from this point on. Everything the scripture reveals. And here, while it does not explicitly say this, by deduction we can assume, and I think rightly, that those, those garments of skins came from animals that God taught Adam and Eve how to sacrifice with. That this was God instructing them about their need for sacrifice and clothing and covering. And we can assume that because we see not long after this that their own sons were sacrificing. Well, where would Cain and Abel have learned to sacrifice? It's not something that just intuitively by the law of nature, everybody knows they need to sacrifice. God would have instructed them. He has given Adam and Eve a, a, a visible representation of what they need and the benefits of them, of it. So that when God comes to uh, Israel and he, he, and he confronts Israel over their depravity through Isaiah the prophet, he, he says, and Isaiah says, that all our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They all fade like a leaf. Isaiah is reflecting on Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves, trying to, trying to provide atonement for themselves and their sins. And yet here God is intimating that the way in which he is going to reverse the curse is he is going to provide the sacrifice and he is going to clothe his people. As Isaiah says, I will clothe you with righteous robes. Um, you know, if you trace this out all the way to the foot of the cross, John gives us that glorious, that glorious double entendre about the seamless robe of Jesus, that the guards took it and they would have torn it in pieces, but instead they gambled for it. You see, it's the seamless covering of Christ that Adam and Eve needed that we need. They needed the righteousness of Christ to clothe them. And the Lord is telling them, I am going to clothe you. Remember, it was the, the shame of their nakedness their physical nakedness that was representative of the shame of their spiritual nakedness. And so the physical covering of them with the animal skins was pointing to God covering them with the righteousness of Christ. This is, by the way, this is the storyline of the Bible. This is, I, I used to say to people when we would witness in New Jersey on the boardwalk, I, I would say, why do you wear clothes? I'd say, I don't know. People would laugh at me. No, no, no. Why, do you, why, would you, why do you wear clothes? And it's one of the simplest things. Every day we get up and we clothe ourselves. Why? Because we know we need to be clothed with something that covers our, our nakedness, spiritually, not just physically. Built into the very fabric of what we do is evidence of what God is, is teaching Adam and Eve here. And then I want us to focus on the flaming swords, finally, in the reversal of the curse. God had set these two cherubim at the east of Eden. And he had put in the hands of those cherubim these huge flaming swords that would guard the way to the tree of life. No one was getting back into the garden temple. And as we consider this, and we consider the unfolding of redemptive history, we come to a prophecy in Zechariah 13.7. I want you to listen very carefully there. Zechariah, as he is reflecting on the coming Redeemer, and the Lord is speaking through him about 
what, what this Redeemer is going to do. Notice this. The Lord says through Zechariah, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. That's Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. Says the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd. Remember, Christ appeals to this. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now here, uh, the Lord through Zechariah is using the imagery of the sword as representative of his wrath. It is, it is representative of him executing the guilty. And here in Zechariah, the Lord says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. How, how are we ever going to get access back into the garden paradise, to the tree of life, except someone goes through those flaming swords and that sword falls on him and he opens the way. By the way, I would challenge you at some point to go and look also at the unfolding of the idea of the east gate in the temple. Um, it's, not, it's not coincidental that Ezekiel, when he speaks of the vision of the new temple, the heavenly temple, he, he speaks of the east gate and and there is one who goes through and opens the gate, the east gate. It's the prince. And the prince goes in and he opens it. And remember, the waters come out and they rise. And yet the way is open into the temple again through the east gate. And that's a picture of Christ going back into the heavenly temple. When he ascended, he entered in. He opened the way, a new and living way, the writer of Hebrews says. And the sword of God's wrath had to fall on him at the cross. You know, there's this beautiful, beautiful hymn by a, an old hymn writer named Anne Cousin. She wrote the words to Rutherford's, The Sand of Time Are Sinking. She, she was the one that abridged that. And the name, of this, the name of this hymn is, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. And I love this line. Listen to this. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must slake, thine heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. You see, Anne Cousins understood this. She understood that Christ would go through the flaming sword, that the sword of God's justice would fall on Christ at the cross, and that the way back to the tree of life would be open for his people. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. There is one way back to the tree of life, and it is through Christ having the sword of God's justice put away in his holy soul as he bore that wrath in himself. You know, this is really seen in, in several ways also. Um, the next time that cherubim are mentioned in the Old Testament after God places them at the garden is they are sewn into the, the very tapestry of the, the curtain in, in the temple that divided the most holy place from the holy place. And, and that's the picture, isn't it? They're guarding the way. No one can get back to God. They are standing there just like they did at the Garden of Eden. And yet God is saying there is going to be a way. And when Christ dies on the cross, what happens? The veil is torn from top to bottom. The way is made known. The sword of justice has fallen on him. The way is now opened. God has opened it. 
The cherubim are removed, and this is glorious. This is glorious. After Christ takes the, the sword of God's justice on himself, and the veil of his flesh is torn, and the way into the holiest is made open to all who come to God through him, and in that garden on resurrection, on the first resurrection Sunday, there are angels at the tomb, and it is open, and they do not have swords in their hands. You see, isn't that marvelous? They are not standing there with flaming swords. They are standing there in peace because the sword has been quenched in the very soul of Jesus on the cross. You know, I, I could go on and on. I want to just encourage you tonight as you reflect on, as you reflect on your life under the curse that God necessarily had to pronounce on our first parents, as you reflect on the difficulties of this life, the futility of this life, as you reflect on um, our need to have access to the tree of life, who is Christ himself, I want to encourage you that God, from the very beginning, was committed to not only placing that curse on man, but reversing that curse. As you read scripture, I want to encourage you to look for all those intimations that God is reversing what man deserves, and it's all by grace. And I think I've told you this, I'll just point it out as the final thought tonight. I don't know at what point this hit me, but you know, Christ as the last Adam takes all of that curse on himself. Um, he wears the crown of thorns, the symbol of the curse. Think about that. He wears the crown of thorns. In the garden, he sweats great drops of blood, and then he dies. And then he dies. He tastes death for his people. He takes all of Adam's curse on himself to reverse the curse for us so that we can have access to the tree of life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand these big picture truths better. We pray that you would cause them to grip our minds and hearts with a sense of wonder and astonishment at your grace, at your commitment to reverse the curse that we are under by nature. Lord, we pray that you would make us to see and know that a new and living way has been opened for us through through the, the rent veil, even the flesh of Jesus, that he has fallen under the sword of your justice, that the shepherd has been stricken with that sword so that we might enter in through that new and living way. And so, our God, would you give us grace that we might trust the Lord Jesus fully, that we might know more of what he has accomplished for us, that we might abide in him, and that we might run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto him who is the author and finisher of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.